Well, good morning, Sovereign Grace. Um, we wish we could be with you on this Lord's Day, but in lieu of that, because of our present circumstances, uh, we will spend time in the Word together, um, hopefully for most of you coming from your living rooms. Um, so, if you will, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse 11. So Hebrews chapter 7, I'm going to start reading in verse 11. I'm going to read verses 11 through 19. So let's look at that together. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word together this morning, as we look at what was superintended by your spirit for the Hebrew Christians and and for your church in every age, that you would help us understand your word, that your spirit would illumine our minds so that we understand what the word says, that he would work powerfully in our hearts so that we are convicted, that we respond with faith and repentance and joy. Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work in such a way that we understand that Christ is our great high priest who perfects his people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning as we look at Hebrews 7, 11 through 19, I want us to consider the priest who perfects his people. Christ is the great high priest who perfects his church. And in order to do that, in order to consider that, I want to really do two things. First, I want to look at or exposit the passage, just explain it to you and think through what is this passage saying. And second, I want to look at two major implications of what this passage is teaching. So first we'll explain the passage, and then we'll look at two major implications of it. So let's look first at the explanation of the passage. The last couple of weeks, we have spent time in Hebrews discussing Jesus as our great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And in our passage today, we continue that consideration But we really are pressed into an implication of Jesus being after the order of Melchizedek. Something has been brought up by the author of Hebrews, which he wants us to consider. 
if we have a new priest, according to a different priesthood, then there must be something incomplete, something imperfect, lacking in the former priesthood. See, a new priesthood assumes something was incomplete or imperfect with the former priesthood. Look at Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 11, and I just want to start by looking at the brackets of this paragraph we're looking at together. Look at verse 11. Now if perfection, notice that word perfection, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it, under the Levitical priesthood, um, the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Aaron being, um, and his sons being of the Levitical priesthood. Now look down at verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So the law, the Levitical priesthood, made nothing perfect. So there's another priesthood that's arisen that does make things perfect. So in verse 11, we're told that the Levitical priesthood could not bring about perfection. For under that priesthood, people received the law. Notice what it said. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it, the people received the law. Now look down at verse 19. For the law, verse 19, the law made nothing perfect. Now, before I get into this question about perfection, I really need to lay some groundwork. I want you to notice um, that the Levitical priesthood, if you will, on the one hand, and the law on the other, are basically being identified with one another. Why is that? Why are the law and the priesthood being seen as a a package deal? Notice again, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for for under it the people received the law, verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect, These two things are being considered a package deal. Why? Well, in order to understand that question, we need to ask what really is meant by the words, the law. See, what does he mean when he says, the law? Does he mean the Ten Commandments? Does he mean um, the first five books of the Old Testament? What does he mean by the law? I want to argue that the law in this text is a way of saying the Old Covenant. The covenant made with Moses. The covenant made at Mount Sinai. Look at Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 20. And it was not without an oath, speaking of Christ's priesthood being given by an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. See, those other priests received their priesthood through the law, Jesus through an oath. That makes Jesus, if you will, the priest of a better covenant. Now now drop down to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. Verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. 
For if the first covenant, that's the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant made in Mount Sinai, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Look at Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, that being the covenant that Christ has made, he makes the first one, that being Moses' covenant, obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. In other words, in comparing two different priesthoods, Hebrews is also comparing two different covenants. He is comparing the old covenant delivered at Mount Sinai after Israel came out of Egypt through Moses with the new covenant delivered by Jesus at Mount Calvary when he was crucified for his people. And Hebrews considers it fundamental that covenants have priests who administer them. The old covenant was administered by the Levitical priests. The priests under Moses were the sons of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. They administered the old covenant, the law. And Hebrews is saying a different priesthood has come, thus a new covenant has begun. So if you've grasped where I'm going so far, we now have the groundwork, if you will, to to follow the argument here. But again, just as a reminder so that you're able to follow the argument that the author of Hebrews is making, I, I want to point this out. The law here is a reference to, so when we read the law, is a reference to the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. I want that to stick in your mind. And the Levitical priests are those who administer that old Mosaic covenant. There is a fundamental identity, if you will, between priests and their covenants. With that said, look again at Hebrews 7 and verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Notice he just argued that we know that perfection was not attainable through the Old Covenant. It was not attainable through the Old Covenant through the Levitical priesthood. How do we know that? Because if perfection were attainable through the Old Covenant, if perfection were attainable through the Levitical priesthood, then there would be no need for a priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek. So if you get a new priesthood, you get a new covenant, indicating the previous covenant was imperfect. It wasn't able to perfect God's people. Look at Hebrews 7 and verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. In other words, the priesthood has changed, so the covenant has changed. And this priest after the order of Melchizedek does not come from the tribe of the Levites. And because he does not come from the tribe of the Levites, he's not a son of Aaron, he must be the priest of a different covenant. Look at Hebrews 7 and verses 13 and 14. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe. 
from which no one has ever served at the altar. In other words, no one from this other tribe has ever been a priest. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. See, Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. He came from the tribe of kings, not the tribe of priests. Moses' covenant does not have priests descended from Judah. It doesn't. Thus, Jesus' priesthood must be of a different covenant. So follow the argument. Follow what he's arguing. When God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, he gave them a covenant at Mount Sinai. We call it the Old Covenant, the Law, the Mosaic Covenant. And when the Lord gave that covenant, he gave them a priesthood to administer that covenant. The priesthood is from the tribe of the Levites, from the sons of Aaron. But that old covenant that Israel received at Mount Sinai from Moses could never bring about perfection. We know this is true because David prophesied. That's what he's saying. We know that's true because David prophesied in Psalm 110 a priest after the order of Melchizedek who would come. And that priest, Jesus, has come. He is not from the tribe of Levi. Even more than that, look at verses 15 and 16. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. See, Melchizedek was the type in history of the historical Christ who came in history. He was the type of the anti-type Christ who came in history. Look at what it says. He arose in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest. Christ became a priest, notice, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Hebrews is carrying the contrast between Jesus on the one hand and the Levitical priests on the other even further. The Levitical priests became such by legal requirement of bodily descent. Your father was a priest, You were born of him, you became a priest. If you were a son of Aaron, a Levite, then you were born into the priesthood. But Hebrews is saying that Jesus did not receive his priesthood in this way, nor on this basis. He did not receive his priesthood on the basis of a legal requirement regarding bodily or physical descent, as the Levitical priests did. So on what basis then did Jesus receive his priesthood? He received it on the basis of an indestructible life. Now that's not talking first about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, though Jesus did resurrect from the dead and lives forever. What this is really actually talking about is Jesus being the eternal Son of God. Look at Hebrews 7.17. For it is witnessed of him, notice that word for, for, here's the explanation for his his receiving the priesthood on the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
In other words, the father, and he's going to go on to say this in a little bit, the father gave an oath to the son before the foundation of the world that he would be the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The father promised that Jesus would be the priest of the covenant of grace. Okay, I need to stop and explain that that for a minute just to sort of help you come along. When Adam sinned in the garden, God had created him perfect, holy, undefiled. God had given him a commandment. Don't eat of the tree. If you eat of it, the wages of your sin will be death. You will be under the curse. You will be separated from me. You'll lose the blessing of being present with me, communing with me for eternity. Adam ate the fruit anyway. He rebelled. He sinned. And so Adam and all his posterity, that means all men and women, we're all descended from Adam, all of us were put under the curse. We are all separated from God in and of ourselves. We are born dead in our sins. We are rebels, corrupted, guilty in Adam. And we deserve death. The wages of our sin is death. But the Lord made a promise When he brought the curse, he made a promise to send the seed of the woman to crush Satan and to save his people. He made at that point, if you will, a covenant of grace. That promise in Genesis 3.15 is the mother promise. It is the promise from which all other promises are birthed. Genesis teaches us to await This seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. This Messiah, our Savior, this Christ. Eventually, as Genesis progresses, the Lord separates Abraham. And he makes a covenant with Abraham. In in which we learn that the seed of the woman is coming through Abraham's seed. God will be God to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God will dwell with Abraham and with his children. Thus, Abraham is the father of all who believe, because he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham, then, and his offspring are the people of God. He represents, if you will, the church in the Old Testament, the people of the Lord, In the Old Testament, the elect in the Old Testament, he represents them. Now, Abraham, in in representing the church in Genesis 14, is approached by this priest named Melchizedek. Melchizedek comes and blesses Abraham. Melchizedek, we're told in Hebrews 7.3, resembled the Son of God. He was the priest of the Most High God. He is the King of Righteousness and the king of peace, who's coming from Jerusalem, and as the type of the Christ, he came and blessed Abraham. Abraham received, had received and believed the gospel. He had heard the good news of his salvation, and he believed it, and it was credited to him as righteousness. But Abraham awaited this coming Christ. He, if you will, had a foretaste of it, and one who resembled the Son of God, this great high priest, but he really awaited him, this 
one who would be born from him, this seed of the woman, this seed of Abraham, the one who would possess the gates of his enemies, who would save his people, who would crush the head of the serpent, who himself would be the true king of righteousness and king of peace, who would bless his church. And so he awaited him. He saw him from afar. But he did not receive him during his life. He didn't come historically during the life of Abraham. So Abraham's people, Abraham's church, if you will, or Israel, Israel was the church in its immaturity, in its imperfection. They were like the church as children. That's how Paul phrases them. Awaiting the air under a pedagogue, a kind of servant who oversees the household and keeps the children in line until the heir comes, until the day of maturity arrives. So they were the church who were saved by faith in the promise of Christ. They were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, just as we are. But they did not receive Christ's arrival, his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, etc., in their lifetimes. Yet God was committed to caring for them as his church, as his children, as they awaited the Son. Thus God placed them under the law of Moses. Moses' covenant was a temporary covenant. Moses was the servant in the house who kept the children in line until the heir came, until the Son came. His covenant, Moses' covenant, existed to govern the people of God as they awaited the fulfillment of the promise. It was given as something that testified to their need for the Christ. These types and shadows in their worship, in the sacrifices, in their priesthood, in their kings, in their prophets, were all pointing forward to the Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of them. They were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. They had that administered to them, that grace administered to them through these types and shadows under Moses. But they didn't have the perfection yet. Moses' covenant could not perfect them. It could not itself bring them into the full enjoyment of God's covenant promises. Look at Hebrews 7, verses 18 and 19. For on the one hand... A former covenant, excuse me, a a former commandment, and I think that's another way of talking about a covenant here, is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. It, It was useless to the end of perfecting the people. It wasn't useless in every sense. God's grace was administered through it, but it was useless toward the end of perfecting the people. It was too weak for that. For the law made nothing perfect. Verse 19, For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, here's on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. See, the law, the old covenant, made nothing perfect. It was weak and useless to that end. But the gospel, the new covenant, introduced a better hope. You see, Christ in the new covenant perfects what Moses in the Old Covenant could not perfect. Moses 
was temporary and typological. Moses pointed forward. Moses' covenant was like the servant in the house who cared for the children until the son came. The children were living in the right house. They were heirs themselves. And Moses was serving in that house while they were children. But the Son of God is the builder and owner of that house. He is the heir of that house. So when he came, perfection came with him. The Levitical priests served in the house of God and watched over the people of God, but they could never, never perfect God's people. Look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 39. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 39. We're familiar with this passage in Hebrews 11 as it speaks about the faith of the saints in the Old Testament, those who were believing in the coming of Christ. They were believing in these gracious promises. But look what it says in verse 39. And all these, all these, though commended through their faith, all these Old Testament saints, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. See, the historical, the Christ did not come in their own historical period. He came after it. So look what it says. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. You see, until the Christ came, they could not be made perfect. The church could not reach its perfection. The Old Testament saints never saw the church grow up into mature manhood. They never saw it reach perfection, precisely because the priest who could perfect the people of God had not yet come. But now, but now he has come. So when Jesus goes to the cross, and as the Gospel of John tells us in chapter 19 and verse 30, and declares with his last breath, it is finished. It is completed. It is perfected. He is saying that everything necessary for the church to be perfected, to come into its maturity as heirs, to be saved, has been accomplished. When he is called the perfecter of our faith, in Hebrews 12 and verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He has brought in, or if you will, brought to fulfillment everything the church had been hoping for since the promise of God in Genesis 3.15, but had only received in types and shadows. Here's the point. Jesus is the great high priest who perfects his people. So why would you want to go back to another priesthood? He has brought in a better covenant. So why would you want to go back to another covenant? You see, that priesthood and that covenant could never bring the perfection God's people awaited. Only Jesus could perfect his people, and only his covenant could do that. So why would we want to go back to the old covenant that could not perfect us? Now, now I, want to, I told you I'd want to hit on two major implications of this. 
two major implications. And really, as we look at these two implications, uh, the first one, I'm going to have three sort of sub points too. But here are the two implications. Christ's priesthood has perfected the church's salvation. That's the first implication. Second, Christ's priesthood has perfected the church's worship. So Christ's priesthood has perfected the church's salvation. Let's look first at that. When he says at the cross that it is finished, it really is. The whole of our salvation has been accomplished. Let me mention three ways that Christ's priesthood perfects the church in our salvation. I said I wanted to do some subpoints here. Three ways that Christ's priesthood perfects the church in salvation. Here's the first one. Christ is our righteousness and peace with God. 2 Corinthians 5 uh, really brings these two ideas together. We need to be at peace with God. We need to be reconciled to God. The only way um, that we can really be reconciled to God is if we are righteous. We lack righteousness before a holy God. We have committed injustice. We have rebelled against his holy law. So we have no hope of reconciliation with God because we are ourselves unrighteous, every one of us. And so Paul brings these together in verses 20 and 21 of 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. He is an apostle and his apostolic band, if you will, are ambassadors for Christ. They represent Christ. They go out and speak on behalf of Christ and his kingdom. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be at peace with God. Now, how do we have reconciliation and peace with God? Listen, for our sake, he made him, that is Jesus. The Father made Jesus for our sake. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin. The Father made Jesus to be sin, the one who knew no sin. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. This is speaking really of the great exchange. Our unrighteousness is put on Christ at the cross, on the cross, and he bears it there, paying the penalty for our sin, and his perfect righteousness is credited to us. Old Testament saints had this righteousness and peace really and truly, but they only had it typically and representatively. The Christ, the Lord our righteousness, the Lord our peace, had not yet come. Thus the church was not yet perfected until he came. The second Adam, who kept the law perfectly. The priest, who needed no atonement for himself, had not yet come. The eternal priest, who offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, and then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, had not yet come. The permanent priest, who can save to the uttermost, had not yet come. So when he came, and when he fulfilled all righteousness in his law-keeping life, and went to the cross to become the curse for us, 
and then declared with his last breath, It is finished. It was then that the perfect righteousness before God and peace with God had been purchased for us. Second, Christ is the final word, the fullest revelation of God. See, that's bearing on Christ as our salvation. He is the priest who has perfected our salvation. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 starts by saying, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. You see, the Old Testament saints had true and and sufficient revelation of God's will, of God's promises, of God's purpose. But they did not have the full revelation of God's will, of God's promises, of God's purpose, because the one who reveals the Father had not yet come. See, no one had ever seen God. But the only begotten God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. The Old Testament saints could not be perfect in that way, but Christ's priesthood perfects the church in this way. We have the full light of God's revelation in the face of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, Christ is our access to God with boldness and joy. Christ is our righteousness and peace. Christ is the full and final revelation of God. And Christ is our access to God with boldness and joy. Look at Hebrews 4 and verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Or look at Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, in the Old Testament, the people could not enter the Holy of Holies in the temple. They were always kept at a distance because of their sin and imperfection. They did not have access to the dwelling place of God. The priest who passed through the heavens and entered into the inner place behind the curtains, curtain sorry, had not yet come. But now he has. So now we can boldly and joyfully enter his dwelling place. In fact, we are now anchored there in him. Tethered to the dwelling place of God forever by our great high priest. Now the second major implication is Christ's priesthood has perfected the church's worship. So Christ's priesthood has perfected our salvation in that Christ is our righteousness and Christ is our peace. Christ's priesthood has perfected our salvation and that he is the full and final revelation of God. He is the one who brings us really to the Father. And Christ's priesthood 
is our, um, if you will, perfection of our salvation in that Christ brings us into God's presence forever. He gives us bold access, joyful access to the Father. But, but that's not all. Christ's priesthood is not just perfecting our salvation. Christ's priesthood, in fact, is perfecting the church's worship. Under the Old Covenant, the church's worship had a great number, a great number, a vast number of ceremonies, sacrifices, and regulations. That worship was attended, really, with more outward glory. But that worship did not have the same spiritual power. Our high priest now leads our singing. And he preaches the word into our hearts by his spirit. Look look what it says in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11. For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, our great high priest, and those who are sanctified, that's us, All have one, really, I think ought to be translated one father, not source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name. In other words, Jesus is saying to the Father, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. You see, our great high priest is a more effectual high priest. The worship he leads the church in is a more effectual or powerful worship because he is the one who's leading it. He is the son of the father. He is the one who sanctifies his church. And he is preaching the word by his spirit. He is leading the singing of the saints before the father. Those high priests of the old covenant were able to enter once a year God's presence behind the veil in the tabernacle. But our high priest has entered behind the veil of the tabernacle in heaven forever. And he carries his church there with him. He has been our forerunner. He's our forerunner. He has run ahead of us to heaven and carried us in with him and anchored us there. Why would we ever Why would we ever want to return to carnal and outwardly glorious worship? Yes, outwardly glorious, but it's carnal worship that can never perfect us. Do you see what we have really in the simple, unburdening, if you will, worship through God's word and sacraments? It's simple. It doesn't have much outward glory to preach the word, to take the Lord's Supper, to participate in baptism. It's simple. It's easy, if you will. It's not burdensome. It doesn't look outwardly glorious. But it is the ministry of our great high priest, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the one after the order of Melchizedek, the one who who after making atonement for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The one who ever lives to intercede for us. The one who saves us to the uttermost. Who has gone before us into heaven and anchored us there with him. 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, the full and final revelation of God, the one who perfects his church. So while our worship as a church now seems simple and not very glorious outwardly, it is powerfully effective because of the great high priest who oversees that worship. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful. We are thankful for the kindness that you have shown us throughout redemptive history, throughout the history of your mighty works on behalf of your people, from the time we fell into sin, giving us the first promise of the seed of the woman, and progressively revealing more and more information about that promise, administering your grace to your people in types and shadows through the various Old Testament covenants, leading us fully and finally to the perfection in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our great high priest. We are thankful that you promised he would come, that you fulfilled that, that Christ has come, that he is our righteousness and our peace, that he is the full and final revelation of you, that he is the one who gives us boldness, access, joyful entrance into your presence, that he is the one who leads us in worship. We pray that we would continue to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.